We're working on a series of messages called Vision. And we have a vision for Pansy Chapel. There's a direction that we're going, and it's based on... You guys awake? I am asking the Lord to speak through me this morning, but it's helpful. It's, it's encouraging to whoever's up here if you engage, okay? So let's... let's you can if you want to. So anyway, uh, we're working on a series of messages called Vision, and there's a direction that we're going as a Pansy Chapel. We have been going actually in that direction since 1959. It's not a new direction, but we're just clarifying some of those things, and they're all based on Scripture. And so we started with, what's the vision of Pansy Chapel? You guys should know this by heart. It's written on the front of your bulletin, will be for a long time, and you guys already know it. What is it? To know God and to make Him known from Pansy and beyond. And if somebody, if you told somebody that, and they're like, well, how are you going to do that? Well, then you can just answer, well, we're, we're actually intentionally, we're going to nurture relationships, intentional relationships, with the triune God and with each other. We're going to focus on His truth and live out His love. Amen. And then we're going to break that down even more. We're going to break that down, you can go to the next slide, we're going to break that down into some core practices things that we do, and then we're also going to get to this place where we talk about some core values and the way that we think. But we're working on this first core value. We started this last week already. Last week, we touched on the very beginning of it, the whole thing. I just, I actually really appreciate this sentence. It says, we desire in Pansy Chapel to be Christians that worship the Father, abide in Christ, and depend on the Holy Spirit. Last year we started, uh, last year, last week we started talking about worshiping the Father. And there's no way you can contain that to a Sunday. I don't even know if you can contain that to all of eternity. You guys with me on that? Today we're going to talk about abiding in Christ. Who is Jesus? Let me, just, let me just pray. I'm going to ask you that question again. Lord, I pray that you would come and open up our minds. Jesus, could you just dispel the fog of apathy, Lord? Just clear that mist and that fog out of this room. Could you open up our minds so that for a moment we would have some clarity of mind and we would allow your thoughts to enter our thoughts, just recognizing how much higher your thoughts are than ours. Lord, could you somehow make something clear to us that we would know you in a... We, our understanding of you would become even more. We desire to know you, Lord. Wake that up in us, please. Amen. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. 3,000 years ago, God spoke, the God of the heavens... He spoke and said, there is coming one day a Messiah, an anointed one who is going to proclaim to you, he's going to be my son, he's coming. And people were filled with anticipation for hundreds of years, the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. And then he came. And we know all about his coming, we've, we've, we tell that story often at Christmas, he came, there's so many miracles involved in that, there's a miraculous birth and there's, there's a whole bunch of a story, a big story there around his birth and his coming and his life that we know. 
And then he died. He paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. And then he rose, rose to life. And we get to live in this era after that in which he actually lives in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. This is Jesus. In one sentence, that's a little bit who Jesus is. But we are talking about abiding in Jesus, abiding in the Christ. What does it mean to abide? To remain in Him, to stay in Him, to constantly be plugged in. This Jesus, His words are alive. Do you know that? Do you guys believe that Jesus' words are alive? Jesus instructed the Israelites. He said, he knew his words. And he said, you should be thinking and talking about my words when you sit down when you, and when you sit down and when you stand up. When you lie down and when you are walking. When you're at home or if you're on the road, you should be thinking and talking about my words. You should paint them over your doorposts and put them on your hands and on your foreheads. Tie them around yourself so that you're constantly thinking about his words. To Joshua, he even said, you should be meditating on my words day and night. And in the Psalms, he has this cool analogy that somebody who is, finds delight in the words of Jesus, the Lord, they're like a tree planted by streams of living water. They're, they're like a tree planted by the water. Why are they planted by the water? So they can constantly be plugged into the source that even when it doesn't rain over there, they're still by the stream. They can get water. You know what happens to them? Their leaves don't wither. You with me? It's dry over there, but where they are, they're plugged in. And they don't wither. There's a concept throughout Scripture. And then we get into the New Testament, and healthy Christians yearn for that. They have a desire for that. They want to stay plugged in. They want to abide in Jesus. And then when you get into the New Testament, that concept, Jesus explained that concept even more in John 15. In verse 5 to 6, you guys can shout out the words yellow that are in yellow, okay? I am the vine, he said, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, they cast them into the fire, and they're burned. We are called to be in fellowship, constantly plugged in to Jesus. That's the essence. I'm, there's more scripture that I'm going to reference. I'm telling you the meanings of those scriptures, but I'm not specifically calling out the references. But the, the essence of eternal life is to know God, to know Jesus. You with me? We're called to it. It's necessary. Somebody who is plugged into Jesus should be doing things like growing in godly character. We, Dennis Brown in Sunday School was talking about we, this concept of putting on the new you. Putting on the new you is something that would happen to somebody who is plugged into Jesus. Somebody who's plugged into Jesus might be spending, might be, 
we'll be spending time in Scripture every day. They're going to be listening for a message from the Lord every day. They're going to be listening for steps of obedience every day. We use the SMORP acronym, and I'm going through it in my head right now. We're listening, listening for areas in our life where we should be repenting of sin every day, and they spend time in prayer every day. And to some people, that seems like a religious thing. But people who are abiding in Christ, they do that on a regular basis. So They are so connected to Jesus, it's not even just something that they do. It's, it becomes so much a regular part of their life, it's like it's their lifestyle. Do you get it? That's what it means to plug into Jesus. It's not something that you just do in the morning for five minutes and then you plugged in. It's actually become so much a part of you that you're constantly, every time, even when you do that in the morning, you spend time with Him. But then during the day, you might have worship, you might have praise and worship music on in your car. When you get to work, you might be praying, you might go off into a corner and pray by yourself. You might pray when you're face to face and you're talking to somebody and they don't even know that you're praying, but in your head, you're talking to the Lord. Those kinds of things happen to people who are abiding in Christ. And I just would like to, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, so I won't know who I'm rebuking. But I would like to rebuke the person who thinks that that's religious. If you can think of a good marriage, some of you are in a bad marriage, and so you already know what a good marriage looks like. It's not yours, right? (laughs) That's terrible. But some people who cannot, aren't in a good marriage, they can just imagine what one looks like. And if you're not married, you also know what a good marriage or bad marriage looks like because you've seen a marriage, okay? So I'm going to use the example of a marriage because everybody has seen it, either good or bad. But if you can imagine a good marriage, and I think all of us, either if it's our own marriage or someone else's, we've seen a good marriage. We know what it should look like. So in a good marriage, is it bothersome for the husband and wife to spend time together? Is it bothersome and religious for them to maybe, I don't know if they drink coffee together or go for a walk together or whatever it is, or talk together? Is it bothersome to do that and think, oh, whew, I better not forget, tomorrow morning I need to say hi. <laughs> it becomes part of your lifestyle. So much so that it would be, it feels very odd and empty when it's not there anymore. That's what abiding in Christ should look like. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is talking about. We should be constantly plugged in. Because if we're not, what happens? You dry up. You wither. And if you wither too long, you're going to be dead. And what happens to the dead branches? When you plug into Jesus like that, do you know what happens? You have an unchangeable source. And suddenly something amazing starts to happen in your life. The person who plugs into Jesus and is abiding in Jesus, and that's what they do every day, that's their lifestyle. And their mutual funds drop and they're worth nothing. But they're still happy. What? Their their source didn't change. They lose their job or their business, they save for years and something changes and their business is taken away or whatever. Some big changes happen. Somebody maybe close to them dies. And yet their source doesn't change because none of those people or things or 
opportunities or circumstances. Those things weren't their source. Jesus was their source. That's what it remains to abide in Jesus. Even when their health disappears or their age slips away. Look at this picture. These two gentlemen are in a prison camp in World War II. They are withering away because they're not eating enough. There's nothing wrong with them except that they're not getting enough food. In all likelihood, they're probably getting a little bit every day or almost every day. What a shame it is when Christians think that they're going to somehow have a healthy Christian body by eating a snack once a week. To abide in Jesus means to abide with Him on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, all the days of the week, not just on Sunday morning. Jesus said in the New Testament, He called him, He gave Himself a name. He says, I am the bread of life. Do you guys believe me? He said that? He called himself the bread of life, and if you look at the passage of Scripture in which he talks about himself as the bread of life, he also referenced the manna which God gave the Israelites in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of the manna? God gave the manna to the Israelites six days of the week, and each day they went out and got enough for that day, except on the day before the Sabbath, they got enough to carry them over into the Sabbath. That's the way it should be with us and Jesus. We should be abiding in, in Him every day so that when it comes to Sunday morning, we're moving and operating on what we've been receiving all week long. It's the leftovers of the week, the carryover from the week that carries us into Sunday morning. And then when you sing songs of worship, your hands get out of your pockets and you're like, this is the Jesus I've been feeding on all week. But sometimes I think that people in North America and sometimes here in Pansy Chapel even too, we got it backwards. We try and eat manna on Sunday morning hoping that the carryover is going to last the week. It's not how God designed it. If that's what you're trying to do, it's tough getting your hands out of your pockets on Sunday morning to praise the Lord in a song because you're waiting for someone to tell you if he's good enough for something. But if you've experienced Jesus the whole week and you've understood, man, he's been speaking to you, he's been showing you how good he is, man, you come to church on Sunday morning, how can you not praise him? Amen? People who abide in Jesus, those kinds of things start happening. Let's skip on to the next part of this uh, core practice. We're going to worship the Father. We're going to depend and abide in Christ. And we're going to say it, say it with me. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Do you depend on the Holy Spirit? 
should we depend on the Holy Spirit? Okay, so at some, at some level, kind of in a, in a, in a kind of a, in, in kind of a way, everybody depends on the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, we probably wouldn't even be physically alive or, or be able to breathe, and, and, and I get that. But when we give this, when we write this on a sentence like this that says, here in Pansy Chapel, it's a part of our vision that we want to depend on the Holy Spirit. We're talking about being intentional about it. Something that we get to choose to do, we're talking about seeking, like looking to the Holy Spirit for wisdom. Like when we don't know the answer, we ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, Lord, what would you have us do? We're looking to the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, could you, could you give me revelation, understanding of who you are, because I want to know you more. By the way, that's what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.17. We're, we're, we're depending on the Holy Spirit for power. Jesus promised that when you get the Holy Spirit, you get power. We're saying we should be depending on that. And we're saying that we actually depend on the Holy Spirit for alignment with God. Because His ways are actually quite a bit higher than ours. Amen? Mark chapter 1 is a really good example of that. I've got a scripture reference for all one of those statements, but Mark 1 is a great example of that. The disciples all thought that Jesus, they assumed he would stay over here where his ministry was flourishing, and then he went and spent time with the Lord. And the Holy Spirit directed him to go somewhere else. That kind of alignment with God that calls us to specific places is what we're, we ought to be depending on the Holy Spirit for. Scripture is really clear. Romans chapter 8 says this, Remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. It's not hard to understand. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're a Christian. Those two are the, the one and the same. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Being a child of God and being led by the Spirit are one and the same. They ought to be. So we should have an openness to being led by the Spirit. Amen? Dennis referenced that in Sunday school again this morning. He gave a great example, a very practical example of walking through a hospital and stopping in a certain room because the Holy Spirit led him and my dad in that story to pray in that certain room or to minister to somebody in that room. That's what happens when we're led, we depend on the Spirit. Galatians 5 says, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Do you realize that if we're going to do that, this is not something, we don't depend on the Holy Spirit only at a prayer evening. We don't depend on the Holy Spirit just on Sunday morning or at a set-free evening, or something like that. In every part of our life, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. We're even inviting the Holy Spirit to control us. The other option is to have our sinful nature control us. 
So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And we know that we need to worship the Father in the Spirit. We read that last week in John 4. In Ephesians 6 it says, And we also ought to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. How many occasions? Just once in a while? All occasions. With all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the Lord's people. When the Spirit controls your mind, when you pray in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, live in step with the Spirit, there's an aspect to which He begins to control us that is different than ourselves. Are you with me? Somebody who prays, somebody who prays in the Spirit is praying and allowing the Holy Spirit to even control their prayer. Somebody who has the gift of tongues might even just pray in tongues and allow the Holy Spirit to control their prayer. Somebody who doesn't have the gift of tongues might listen and ask the Lord, how do you want me to pray? I want to pray according to how you want me to pray. The Spirit is interceding for the saints in accordance with God's will, and Jesus Himself is also interceding for us. They know how, God knows how we ought to be praying. And even if you don't have the gift of tongues, you might listen, Lord, how do you want me to pray? And He might bring a word to your mind, a thought to your mind, a picture to your mind, because He does, He promises to do those things. Some people might even do both. Does the, whole, does the Holy Spirit change people? Does He actually come on them in power? Or is this just an idea that we talk about and we learn a few words and that's it? In the Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given specifically to a few people in the Old Testament. Not everybody. It was given typically to kings, maybe the high priest, the prophets, a few key people like that. And one time when the prophet Samuel came and anointed King Saul, the first king of Israel, look at what happened. Samuel, Samuel came up to Saul, and you know what Samuel said? Samuel told Saul, what was going to happen to him later that day. He said, you're going to go to such and such a town, and when you get there, you're going to meet so-and-so. And so-and-so is going to tell you, and then he said what so-and-so was going to tell him. And he said, then you're going to go somewhere else, and you're going to meet that person, and that person is going to be doing such and such, and he lays out for him what's going to happen that day. How did he know those things? And then the scripture says they happened exactly as he said. And then right after that, he anointed King Saul. This, that story is in 1 Samuel 10. You can read it. It says this, um, 
This is what Samuel said to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, because part of the, some of the people he was going to meet was a group of prophets. And you will be changed into a different person. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully on him. Like when you read that, do you kind of hope, well, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Or, or do you actually believe that God's good and desire the things that He has and go, man, I wonder what exactly that was like. I would like that. Is God a good God? If you said yes, then we know that the things that come from God are also good. Amen? Think about David. A couple years later, David comes to meet the prophet Samuel as well. And Samuel's about to anoint him as the next king. But when David walks into the room, the Lord speaks. Then the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Amen? Do you think these are random events? Or are these actually good for the people? Do you feel sorry for David? Or is that simply actually how God likes to work and He desires good things for us? Think about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is like the senior and Elisha is like the junior. There's a story here, I'll tell it real quick, but Elisha and Elijah were going to go for a walk together. Elijah knew because the Holy Spirit told him in advance of what was going to happen, that he was about to go be with the Lord. 2 Kings 2. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance. They're standing at a distance and watching. They're watching Elijah and Elisha go for a walk. A little weird, but that's what they're doing. Facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. So Elijah and Elisha are walking. They're going for a walk. They stop at the river, edge of the river. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and then he struck the water with it. Go to the next slide. The water divided to the right and to the left. Then the two of them walked over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha said, Well, I'd like a bigger house, I'd like a newer car, and a bit more comfort, please. Is that what he said? No, he said, Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. He wanted the Holy Spirit. Do you think it's weird or strange or somehow unnatural to want 
the Holy Spirit? Elisha saw it in Elijah, and he wanted that. And if you read the rest of the passage, the people watching, they could tell later that the Holy Spirit was then resting on Elisha. If you haven't read that story, you should. But in the Old Testament, and I'm, t- I'm telling you things in the Old Testament, this was before the Holy Spirit was given on everybody. But there are some examples of how the Holy Spirit works. Think about it. In the Old Testament, God gave the law to Moses. They had the law. Written down commandments. Do these things. And if you don't, there are some really strict penalties for a lot of them. You with me? If you ever read the Bible, God wasn't fooling around. Okay? But the law didn't answer every question they ever had. Sometimes they needed to inquire of the Lord. The law didn't tell them whether or not they should sell their camper. The law didn't tell them whether or not they should move to a certain town or not move to a certain town or or where to draw a boundary line. Hey, I want to build a fence over here and you want to build it over there. Let's... They had to inquire about the, to the Lord about those things. Are you with me? I know they didn't have campers, okay? In Exodus 33, listen to what it says. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. They already had the law. But they still needed to inquire of the Lord. And if you wanted to inquire, that was the process. But God did even more than that. You ever think about the clothes that they made for Aaron? If you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll recognize that the clothes that they made for Aaron, according, he was the high priest, according to the Lord's design, the top of his clothes would have looked a little bit like that. Could be. We know some of the details based on Scripture, where the gold was tying on... uh, that breastplate he's got with the 12 stones in it, one representing each tribe of Israel, four rows of three, each one a different gem. And the way that they're tied on with the gold, all those instructions are in, in, in Scripture. You know what else was in there besides those, inside that breast piece, besides those 12 stones? God also gave them a very specific way to seek His direction on things. Look at Exodus 28. Also, put the... Yeah, I love making you guys read that. Urim and Thummim. I don't know how else to say it. You guys want to try it one more time? Also, put the Urim and Thummim in the breast piece. So they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. There is some mystery to exactly what the Urim and Thummim were. As far as we know, there are two objects that when they must move or you drop them or you, something happens and they indicate for you what God's will is. They were used for making decisions and seeking God. Not just at random... They had to do it in the Lord's presence.
Another way that they made decisions when the law didn't specifically answer their question was by casting lots, also in the presence of the Lord. Here's an example from when Joshua was leading them. Joshua instructed them, go and make a survey of the land, write a description of it. Then return to me and I will cast lots for you here at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. In verse 9, so the men went through the land. They wrote its description on a scroll, town by in seven parts, and returned to Joshua in the camp at Shiloh. Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. And there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. How did they make those decisions? They cast lots in the presence of the Lord because they wanted the Lord to be the one who was deciding. Those of you who are familiar with the wicked practices that people who worship Satan and his followers do, do you realize that they do similar things looking to him for wisdom that's beyond themselves? And they get wisdom that's beyond what they already knew. They even use things, objects, to communicate. Do you know why that is? It's because Satan is a liar and a counterfeiter. He has never created a thing in his existence. He cannot ever create a thing in his existence. Nothing. All he can do is lie and manipulate the things that are true. He takes something that God created and designed. God gave us an opportunity to come into his presence and ask him for wisdom, and he would show us things in the way we ought to live, and Satan twists it. You can even, you can even see that in the New Testament. Do you realize this? Think about that next time. you Maybe this will make sense when you read the New Testament. And a demon comes up and says, Hey, Jesus, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, Be quiet. The demon wasn't wrong. He actually knew something that most of the people there didn't know. He knew who Jesus was. But he didn't have the things of God in mind because there was a timing issue and there was other issues and Jesus needed to rebuke him. You with me? God allows us to inquire of him. Satan is just a counterfeiter. That's why Isaiah 8 verse 19 says, When people tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people, why would you consult them? Should not a people inquire of their God? That's what it says in Isaiah. Why are you consulting the dead on behalf of the living? That's what God said. You should consult the living on behalf of the living. Amen? It's the same today. 
Why are you going to consult the dead on behalf of the living? Why don't you just ask the living God? Amen? The same thing applies today. We can inquire of the Lord. Do you know that they even cast lots in the New Testament? Do you believe it? Do you believe that they cast lots in the New, in the New Testament? Or am I pulling your leg? Here's like five people that say yes. And everybody else is scared, really? I don't think so. <laughs> well, let's read. Acts is a book in the New Testament. We're going to read out of Acts chapter 1. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, talking about Jesus, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. Amen? Come on, do you already realize what that just said? After he was dead, he came and appeared alive to the apostles a number of times. Amen. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those times and dates. And they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. That happened approximately, well, it said 40 days, so we'll just go. It happened 40 days after his resurrection. But I thought you said we were talking about casting lots. So this, he just said this 40 days after his resurrection. Next in the same chapter, in chapter 1, the, the, the disciples get together, and it says there was 120 of them. And Peter stands up and addresses the whole group of them, and he says, he tells them, Jesus has, he appointed 12 of us as apostles. One of us, Judas, he went and killed himself. Now we're down to 11. It says in the Psalms, he knew from the book of Psalms that they needed to replace Judas. But they had two guys. They needed to decide which guy they're going to choose. They had, they had one guy. Maybe I have the scripture in here. Verse 23. So they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, Lord, you know every heart. Show us which one of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they... They were casting lots. 
They cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. They cast lots the same way they did in the Old Testament, in the presence of the Lord. Here they did it with prayer. They came in the presence of the Lord, and they cast lots in the New Testament. That's in Acts chapter 1. What very significant thing. That's 40 days after the crucifixion. But the next chapter happens 50 days after the crucifixion. What happens? That's Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and addresses the crowd and says, the coming of the Holy Spirit is what was prophesied years ago. This is what's going to happen. Your old men are going to dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Everybody gets the Holy Spirit who follows Jesus. And from that time on in Scripture, you never see anybody talking about Urim and Thummim. You never see anybody talking about casting lots. But they still come back into the presence of the Lord to make decisions. They do it through fasting, through prayer. Sometimes it's maybe a dream or a vision. And sometimes after seeking prayer, they say, well, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then they make a decision. By the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is our means through which we can inquire of the Lord. Amen? Do you think it's strange then that we would today inquire of the Holy Spirit? Would it not seem actually like the thing we ought to do? Would it be natural for Christians to be just like they were in the early church, to inquire of the Holy Spirit? I want to point, I'm going to take, an, I'm going to take longer today because I want you to understand a powerful truth. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that when the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, when He comes, you know, what's going to, you know what He is going to have on Him, resting on Him? The Holy Spirit. That is prophesied a number of times already in the Old Testament that when Jesus, the Son of God, comes, He's not just going to be God as a man. He is actually going to have the Holy Spirit resting on Him. Jesus actually would model for us how to depend on the Holy Spirit. You can see it in all four of the Gospels that Jesus gets baptized and in all four of the Gospels, when he's baptized, they follow, him up, they follow that up with him being either led, and I'm quoting it, led by the Spirit, sent by the Spirit, or full of the Holy Spirit. You can actually even see it in one chapter, in Luke 4, you'll see it. He was, he was led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, sent by the Spirit. Then he was sent out into the desert by the Spirit, Tempted, fasted for 40 days. And then in verse 14, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then continuing on in that chapter in verse 18, he stands up and proclaims to the people, 
The Spirit, you go to the next slide. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. He stood up and he read that scripture out of the Old Testament saying, this is me, I am full of the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit resting on me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To be fair... To the theologians in the room, I also understand that Jesus depended on the Father. And he said it. I only do what I see my Father doing. I speak nothing on my own. I speak just what the Father has taught me. It's the Father living in me who's doing his work. I get that. But he clearly depended on the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you were to read in, the, in Acts chapter 1, all of the instructions that were given to Jesus were given through the Holy Spirit. When he was casting out demons, the Pharisees thought he was doing it by Beelzebub. But he said, it's not true, I'm actually doing it by the Holy Spirit. He even experienced the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It says he was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. He experienced the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peter summarized Jesus' ministry this way in Acts chapter 10. He said, You know that what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. What is the very obvious question? If Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit, shouldn't we? It's not complicated. You know how simple it is to depend on the Holy Spirit? Instead of relying on your understanding, rely on His. I'm going to give you an example. There's a man in our church who came up to me this week he didn't actually come up to me. We were in a group. But he shared a story. He and his wife were in a situation. They knew somebody was very, very ill. Ten-hour car drive away from where they were. And his wife thought they should go and drive the ten hours to minister to the people that were going through the tough time. He thought... They should stay home. You know what they did? It's the husband that was telling the story. He says, so then they prayed. And he says, in his words, they inquired of the Lord. They inquired of the Holy Spirit. They asked the Lord, Lord, what would you have us do? And he shared that story. I didn't force this out of him. He shared that story there were tears coming into his eyes because he said as soon as they were done praying, he knew they had to go. And they did go. And then, the, and then he tells the whole rest of the story and there's, in, in, there's evidence after evidence after evidence in his story that God was working with them in that place. That's a really good example of how to depend on the Holy Spirit. He didn't want to go. What did he do? He just asked the Lord. 
the Lord changed his heart. That's what the Holy Spirit did to King Saul. He changed him. It's what the Holy Spirit does. It's a simple thing. I surrender, get on my knees. Lord, what would you have me do? Because I just, I'm going <laughs> to, I want to obey. You could depend on the Holy Spirit. You ought to depend on the Holy Spirit, but I'll give you some examples. Maybe with a step of, of obedience. Lord, what do you want me to do? And then when he asks you what to do, you might realize, Lord, there is no way that I can do that. Exactly. You're going to have to depend on him. When you pray, you can depend on the Holy Spirit. Lord, how do you want me to pray? What's your heart for how to pray? You might need to depend on the Holy Spirit for love for other people. Some people, you might not naturally love. But if you depend on the Holy Spirit, you'll be amazed what happens. You might already know something that you ought to do, but you actually don't want to do it. And I think of, I think of kids who are in school and have to... I feel sorry for you because I don't like school. And you might know that you actually have to go there and you might be tempted to kind of be grouchy about it. I would be exactly in the same place because I didn't like school either. But I know this, that when you ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, could you give me joy in that anyway? And you depend on Him? That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. That's why Jesus could look at the cross, scorn its shame, with the joy set before him. You with me? This is what the Holy Spirit does when we depend on him. So I want to show you this picture. With a little scripture in the bottom, it says, Do not quench the Spirit. I think sometimes Christians are like the owner of that house. We've been given a gift. In a very simple sense, the gift is like a brand new car sitting in our garage. And some Christians, go, they work so hard, they live their entire lives within walking distance of their house. And they are religious about it. They're excited if they can walk for two miles instead of one, but they're confined to whatever they can walk to. And they live their entire lives like that. Do they have the Holy Spirit? Oh, yeah. It's parked in the garage. Brand new. Compare that to the freedom and the opportunities that exist for somebody who even just would get in the car and depend on the car. You with me? We ought to be Christians who depend on the Holy Spirit. And if we're stuck... And scared, maybe, we're, maybe you're scared, you don't know how the car works. Well, I don't know how the car works either. But it's a reliable source of transportation, and when you get in it and drive, you can accomplish so much more than you ever could on your own, amen? A.W. Tozer 
wrote a quote approximately a hundred years ago. I'm going to read it. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I desire to be the Christian that if the Holy Spirit was taken out of my life, everybody would know the difference. And I desire that for Pansy Chapel, that we would be a church like that too. That if the Holy Spirit was removed from this group of people, everybody would know the difference. That's why we're making it our core practice of our mission to worship the Father, to abide in Christ, and to depend on the Holy Spirit. Join with me in prayer. And maybe the simplest way to start this is that if you agree with what's prayed, you could just even out loud say amen at the end of that prayer because it means that you agree. Jesus, Heavenly Father, (laughs) worthy of all our worship, Jesus, the Son of God who came and gave us everything that more than we could ever, ever, ever seek to earn. We only get to be righteous because of who you are. You became sin for us so that through you we could have the righteousness of God and through you we have the gift, the gift of your Holy Spirit. I desire to be the kind of Christian that abides in you, Jesus. And I desire for Pansy Chapel to be the kind of congregation that abides in you, Jesus. And I desire to be the kind of Christian that depends on you, Holy Spirit, And I desire that we together as a body in Pansy Chapel would depend on you, Holy Spirit. And any believer who agreed said, Amen.